Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. Do you ever feel like you are stuck where you are and that you need a change of scenery? If you can, please open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 43, as John shows us in Scripture that God wants to do a brand new thing in the same old place. Something about new things, whether it's a new television, a new shirt, a new car, a new house, a new dish brush, Something about new things, a new book, a new Bible. We like new things. But did you know that God likes new things too? We read in the Bible that God gives us a new heart when we get saved, a new spirit. We become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then we can sing a new song. One day the Bible says we'll go to a new heaven and a new earth. And God himself has said, I'm the one who makes all things new. In the meantime, we read that God's mercies are new for us every single morning. And so we serve a God who's all about doing new things in our lives. Now, if you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 43, I want us to look at two verses to begin with today that help us to understand the importance of new things in our lives, God wanting to do something new. The title of the message is, God wants to do a brand new thing in the same old place. Sometimes we have the idea that when we think about new things, we want to be in a new place, a new job. We think maybe if I had a new job, then it would really be exciting and new. Well, after a while, the new job wouldn't be new anymore. We think if I had a new house or a new car. And sometimes God gives us those new tangible things, but more often than not, God seems to do new things in the same place where we are right now. And so it's not so much God giving us something new as it is God doing something new in us. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse number 18. God is speaking and God says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, now here's our key phrase, I will do a new thing. Say that with me. I will do a new thing. Say it again. Now, that's God talking, and God is saying, I'm going to do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. And God says, when I do it, it's going to be sudden. It's going to spring forth, not gradual. It may not happen immediately, but it's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen suddenly. Shall you not know it? God says, when I do that new thing in your life, whether it's something I do in you, something I do for you, or something I do through you, you're going to know it. You shall know it, he says. And then he said, I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God said, it's going to be supernatural. I'm going to do something that nobody else can do. You're out there in the wilderness season of life, in that wilderness where you don't know which way to go and which way to turn. And and you're just seeing all this stuff, and it's all so fuzzy and unclear. God says, I'm going I'm to make a road right there, and you're going to walk that road that I have prepared for you. And then he said, I will make rivers in the desert, in, that, in those dry places of our lives. God says, what I want to do there, I want in that desert that you're in right now. Some of you today are in a desert. 
circumstantially, emotionally, mentally, financially, you're in a desert, and you're saying, God, I want you to do something new for me. I want you to get me out of this desert. God might, he might do that. He might change your circumstances, but the odds are God will say, no, not going to change your circumstances, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some rivers in the desert, and those rivers are going to sustain you and satisfy you, and the desert won't be dry anymore because then you will have water to drink. And so today, we're thinking about God doing in our lives something new, giving us a new sense of joy. I, you know, I'm, I'm mindful in, in my profession, in the ministry, in the preacher world, studies tell us that about every 18 months to two years, a pastor, a staff member will leave the church where he or she is and go to another church. Now, why is that? Why are people changing churches every two years? Well, maybe God's telling them to. I mean, our family came here because God told my parents when my brother and I were young, leave where you are and go to Pasadena. So sometimes the cloud moves. But I sometimes wonder, is the cloud really moving that often? Maybe it is. But could it be that in some of those instances, some of those guys in those churches are saying, man, this is a tough season. This is a dry place. These are, this is a hard church to pastor. It's like a desert experience. I need something new. And so I'm going to leave where I am and go over here here, and when I get here, it will be new. But the studies tell us they don't stay there very long, because what is new on day one is not new after about a year and a half. And so they go from there to there, but it's not just preachers. I think it's like that in the business world, too. Many times a person's in a job, and they say, I don't like my job. I need something new. And so they leave where they are, and they go to this other place. And again, I'm not saying that's wrong. Sometimes God, the cloud moves, and sometimes God tells us, go from point A to B. But sometimes God says, stay in A. Stay where you are. You want something new. But when you think of new, you're thinking about me giving something new to you. But God says many times when I think about new, I'm thinking about doing something new in you, for you, and through you, right where you are. And yet, if we're honest, we have to admit that when we're in the wilderness, <laughs> those seasons of life where nothing makes sense and we just feel like we're wandering around, when we're in the desert and things are dry and hard and difficult and, and painful and, and, and just tough, we can lose hope, and we think, man, is it always going to be this way? And God says, no, it's not always going to be this way. I'm going to do something new. I'll either move you, or I'll keep you where you are and do something new and do something fresh in your life right now. And when I do it, it's going to be quick. It's going to spring forth. It's going to be sudden. You'll know it. It's going to be certain, and it's going to be supernatural because only I can do it. Now, we're thinking about the wilderness and the desert and those hopeless times in life when we want something new so bad and uh, yet nothing seems to be happening in our circumstances. If you have your bulletin today, I just want to make three quick observations about new places. Number one, as we think about hopeless places rather, number one, no place is a hopeless place if God is there. You know, when those people in the Old Testament were in the desert, they looked at it and they said it's hopeless, but it wasn't hopeless. Why? Because God was there, because God was with them, and if God is there, no place is a hopeless place. And so I'm encouraging you today, whether it's a job or a, whatever the change you might be considering so you can have something new, before you make that move, consider the fact that wherever you are right now, God is there. Again, if the cloud moves, go with that. But if it, if it doesn't move, stay right where you are. As we think about God's will, 
sometimes in life we don't know what is God's will. Does God want me to stay here or do that or go here or do that? And sometimes we don't know what to do. The, the, some of the best advice I ever received on this, when you don't know what to do, stay right where you are. And don't move from where you are until God has told you uh, where to go to next. I was thinking very recently about a wonderful church in Brooklyn, New York. I'm not sure how many of you might have been to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, but I've been there and others of us here, my parents have been there many times. I went up there in 2010 with my dad and with Jimmy Herwick. We went to attend their Tuesday night prayer service. The Brooklyn Tabernacle is one of the greatest churches in the nation. If you're ever in New York City, if you're ever in Manhattan, I would encourage you to get on the subway and go to Brooklyn for a Sunday service or a Tuesday night service. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's such a diverse community. You go in that huge sanctuary that they have, and you have people from every imaginable background in life. It's, it's just, talk about the throne room of heaven. You kind of feel like you're in heaven because all these people from all these different backgrounds are there, and it's just, it's an amazing thing. But the Brooklyn Tabernacle has not always been that way. In fact, many years ago, the Brooklyn Tabernacle was so small, and the church was doing so poorly that they nearly closed the doors and the church just completely went out of business. And there was a man who, I wouldn't say he was the superintendent over that church or other churches, but there was a man who was kind of in touch with what was happening in that church. And he said to his son-in-law, who was in his 20s, he said, Jim, I think you and my daughter, your wife, should go to Brooklyn and preach a son." preach one Sunday over there and just see what you think. And so Jim and Carol and, and Carol Simbola went to the Brooklyn Tabernacle and preached. And he said when he walked in the room, he saw, first of all, that the sanctuary seated about 200 people. But he said that was far larger than what they needed because in the first service that he preached at, they only had about 15 people who were there. He said the building needed painting, the air condition needed to be repaired, the Think walls were falling in. He said it was just a dilapidated old building. And here are 15 people, and so he's preaching. And, you know, if you're in a room that holds 200 and you've got 15 people out there, that's a challenge, certainly for anybody. And he's preaching his first sermon there, and he comes towards the end of the sermon. And, uh, you know, he's been looking around the whole time, and he noticed some of the people were kind of drifting off to sleep, very much the experience I have here you know, a lot of time on Sunday. <laughs> And others were with him. And he heard this, bam, kind of startled him. He looked up, and one of the old pews just collapsed. Five people were on that pew, and it collapsed. He thought, man, the pews can't even take my preaching. They done gone out on me. Finished the sermon, and he said to his father-in-law, man, that's a tough assignment you gave me. Fifteen people, the buildings are horrible. I mean, it's just, there's no life there. His father-in-law said, Jim, I, I think you should go back and try it again next Sunday. And so he did that for some time. And it's a long story, but in the retelling of that story, Pastor Simbola says that the lady who used to lead the music there, who would play the piano, she only knew one song, and it was, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And so every service, that's all they sang was, Oh, How I Love Jesus, which is a beautiful song. But if you like variety, you might have gotten bored with just singing that song over and over and over and over again. And so finally, he said to uh, his wife, Carol, who has incredible music abilities, maybe we could start a little choir here. And they started a choir called the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir with nine people in it to begin with. Now it has hundreds, maybe the largest choir in the nation, but it wasn't always that way. Jim and Carol began to pray and began to feel that God was leading them to go to this church and to become the pastor, and so they did. 
And those early days, those first months were just horrible. The church didn't have any money. They couldn't pay the bills. And he just said he just didn't feel the freedom of the Spirit in the service. You know, sometimes you can be in a service, and, you know, you can have that here. Sometimes, you, sometimes I'm in a service, and I just feel the freedom of the Spirit in the worship and in the pre- I, you, you just feel a freedom of the Spirit, and you just feel like the Spirit of God, like a river. You know, Jesus said, he who believes in me, rivers of water shall spring up. And sometimes you just feel the Spirit of God, even in this place, and it's just like a river running through here, and you want to just get on that river and ride that river. But there are times, I don't know that I've ever felt what Pastor Symbola felt, but on his, this occasion when he was preaching, he just didn't feel anything. He didn't feel the spirit. He didn't feel the anointing. He didn't feel the power of God. And he felt like he, as a man, is trying to stand up before these 15 people and do something for God without the power of God. And so he stopped his sermon. And he said, I can't, I can't keep preaching. I don't feel the, I don't feel the spirit. I, I can't do this. And he closed his Bible. And he said, this sermon's over, and what we're going to do is we're going to go into a time of prayer. We need God. There are 15 of us in this room that's fallen down, and we've got a community out here that needs Jesus, and we're going to just begin to pray for somehow there to be a fresh outpouring of the Spirit moving in this place. His wife knew more songs than, oh, how I love Jesus. And so she came up, and she began to lead the congregation to sing the old hymn, Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. I need. They start singing this. And Pastor Simbler said, I'm going to just use this as my altar, and I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to pray. If you, 15, want to come to this altar, and some did. Well, one of the things that they were having in that church, one of the reasons they were having financial problems is because he became convinced that somebody was stealing money out of the offering envelopes. People put some dollar bills in an offering envelope, and on the envelope they might write $30, $40, $50, and yet on Monday when the church opened the offering envelopes to count, what said $60 on the offering envelope only had $20 in the envelope. And this was happening with a lot of the envelopes. He said, I don't, I can't, I don't know what's happening, but this doesn't make sense. I think somebody's stealing the money, and, but I'm not a detective. I, can't, I don't know how to chase that down. And so he's praying. The congregation's praying. Carol's leading this, Lord, I need thee, oh, I need thee. And from the back of the church, the usher walked down, and the usher said, Pastor, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I will never do it again. And so the pastor's, you know, 15, you can be kind of informal. And he said, you'll never do what again? He said, I'll never steal money out of these offering envelopes again. He said, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm the one who's been taking the money, and I want to confess that sin to you and to this church, and I'm sorry, and I will never do it again. And Pastor Simbola said, when that man confessed that sin, it was like the gates, the floodgates of heaven opened, and there was a freedom for the Spirit of God to move, and God began to move. And slowly but surely, that church began to grow, and it didn't get where it is now overnight, but it eventually got where it is. And he said through that experience, he learned that no place is a hopeless place if God is there. And I want to say to you today, in the desert, in the wilderness, it may be dry, it may be hard, it may be painful, but if God's there, it's not hopeless. Now, the second thing I want to say, and it's just a little observation, no place is a hopeless place if God has planted you there. In other words, if you 
are in the center of the will of God, as best as you can determine what God's will is, if you are in the center of God's will, that place is not a hopeless place. Why? Because in the center of God's will is blessing, provision, and everything that we need in our lives. Now, turn back, if you would, to the book of Genesis, chapter number 41. I want to show you something quickly here. Many of you here are familiar with the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And when Joseph was 17 years old, the age of many of our students today, he had a dream. He had a dream that God was going to do something great in his life. And yet, after he had that dream... For the next 13 years, nothing great happened. In fact, the opposite of great happened. Bad things happened. He shared that dream with his brothers, which was probably a mistake, because they felt like he was bragging, and they got jealous, and they got angry with him and threw him in a pit, so he would die down there, and then they started feeling guilty, so they pulled him out of the pit, and then they sold him to some people going down to Egypt, and he ends up in Egypt in a foreign land in a wilderness place, a desert place, and while there, a lady who was the wife of one of the high-ranking government officials, she developed what you might call a crush on Joseph, and she tried to entice Joseph to sleep with her. Well, Joseph knew that he couldn't do that. She was married to another man first, and second, she wasn't his wife, and so he said to her, I can't do this. It'd be a great sin against God. Well, she became so angry with Joseph for shunning her, for rejecting her, that she accused Joseph of raping her. Well, he didn't. He had not done that, of course, but you can imagine if you're living in a foreign country and one of the high-ranking government officials' wives accuses you of raping her, who do you think people are going to listen to, you or her? Well, they listened to her. And so he was thrown in prison. And for years, he was in prison there. Now, when we come to chapter 41, I want you just to see this. At the beginning of the chapter, he's in prison. About halfway through the chapter, Pharaoh has a dream. And he can't find anybody to interpret the dream for him. And so somebody says, well, there's a man in the prison named Joseph. He can interpret the dream. And so Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and Joseph is brought from the prison to the palace. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph's ability to interpret dreams that he makes Joseph the prime minister of the entire land of Egypt. And so now Joseph is second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. So I want you to see from the prison to the palace, to being the prime minister. What did God do? A new thing. He made a road in the wilderness. He made rivers in the desert. He did it suddenly. He did it certainly. He did it supernaturally. And Joseph is promoted into this new thing. Now, as God has done this for Joseph, if you like, in chapter 41, look in verse 46, it says, so Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The 30-year the waiting period has ended. Now at 30, God's about to do a great thing in Joseph's life. Pharaoh, so impressed with Joseph that he introduced him to a young lady there in Egypt, and Joseph married that girl, and God blessed them, and they had two children, two boys, and Joseph named these boys in verse 51. The first boy he named Manasseh. Now, in Bible times, when somebody was named, it had all kind of significance. So he named this boy Manasseh. 
He said, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. He said, God has made me forget all this hard thing and hard times that I went through. Now, does that mean Joseph couldn't remember that? Well, obviously not. He's still talking about it. But God had taken the pain out of those memories. And then he said in verse 52, the name of the second son he called Ephraim. Now, here's what I want you to see. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. You might would have thought that God would have said, now, Joseph, you've been down there in Egypt for 13 years. You've been mistreated, falsely accused. A lot of those Egyptians think that you're a rapist. You don't have the best name down there. So, Joseph, what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring you from Egypt back to Israel where everybody knows about you and your family. You've got a better reputation. And I'm going to do something great through you back in Israel. But that's not what God did. He kept him in Egypt, in the place of his wilderness. And Joseph said, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And it just says to me, no place is a hopeless place if God has planted you there. And that's where God had planted Joseph to prepare him for what he was going to do in his life. You see, one of the things we have to remember during those tough times in life, God is growing us. God is teaching us. And God is preparing us for what he has next. And then the last thing is, no place is a hopeless place if the place itself is temporary. You know, we can about go through anything if we know it's temporary, if we know it's not forever. We know that it's subject to change, and in fact, one day it will change. Even our sadness. Did you know that even grief is temporary? When Joseph said, I've named this boy Manasseh because God has made me forget all my toil, well, he, didn't, he hadn't forgot. He, he, he had not lost his ability to remember, but what had happened was God had taken the pain out of those memories. God had turned that wound, that open wound, into a scar. What is a scar? A scar is a wound that is healed. What does God do? God heals our wounds, and they turn into scars. No, we don't forget the pain. But by the grace of God, we get to a place where we can talk about that and look back on that, and it doesn't hurt anymore because the wound has become a scar. And scars don't hurt. Only wounds hurt. And friend, anytime we're in a wilderness or we're in a dry season or we're in a desert, if we know that it is temporary, if we know that it is subject to change, if we know that this could be the day that there's a shout, From heaven, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and that we could be ourselves before this day ends in the very presence of Jesus Christ in heaven. Think about that. We would come to church on a Sunday morning, and we sing about gathering around the throne room of heaven and worshiping God, and before this day ends, we are there at the throne itself with Moses and David and Peter and Paul and Matthew and Mark, and we're worshiping at the feet of Jesus and saying, God, earlier today, I was worshiping by faith. But now I'm worshiping by sight. We're going to a better place. Amen. And in the meantime, his mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient. And if we'll just trust him, there will come a day when suddenly and certainly and supernaturally, God makes a road in our wilderness. God puts a river in our desert, and He changes everything, beginning with us. Amen?
Are you trusting in Jesus to give you new life like John has been speaking about? Would you like to have 100% assurance that you're going to heaven when you die? You can. Won't you pray with me now? Just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. Right now, I ask you to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. Please make me the person you created me to be. In your name I pray, amen. For those of you who have just prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, we would love to know about it and to rejoice with you in your decision. Please let us know by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-337-0157. Again, that's 1-800-337-0157. We hope that today's message has been a blessing to you. You can find this message along with many others on our website, peacebybelieving.org, under the broadcast tab. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.